around 4.32, I get up at 4.30 in the morning, each morning, around 4.32 this morning, yesterday morning, sorry, I bent over to open my sock drawer, and I've been bent over ever since. My back went out on me. <clears throat> One of the blessings and benefits of getting older. We continue today in Romans chapter 9, verse 14, where Paul says, what shall we say then? And how should we respond to God's choice, choosing Jacob over Esau, even though neither of them had done right or wrong? How shall we respond to this? And truly, there is nothing that can rightly be said. God has spoken and his decisions stand. God has decided that he will love Jacob and hate Esau, and his decision stands. But of course, since humans are rational beings, since we are rational beings, and since we do have some level of conscience, since we do possess the ability to discern what is right from what is wrong and what is fair from what is unfair, it is only natural that we will have a lot to say about God's determinations as it pertains to who's in the kingdom and who's out and why not. Of course we have a lot to say about that because we're rational, conscientious beings and, and because we like to think that we are moral creatures. Of course, we will want to further look into this matter of election, of predestination, so that we can better understand how God justifies what appears to be his bias, a bias toward the one and against the other, his choosing of one person in neglect of the other. We want to look into this matter. Because for many of us, this concept of predestination in which it is taught that God has already known who was going to be saved from eternity and God has already known who was going to be damned from eternity. God has already decided before anything was created. This concept does not sit well with many believers much less to the world. I was watching a video of a college student questioning a pastor on this very subject, and she said, you mean to tell me that God has decided that some people are going to be eternally punished, regardless of who was right and who was wrong. If, if this is what you are saying to me, then I cannot accept your religion. Mm. People have a problem with this idea. It seems rather cruel. The idea that God would extend his hand of mercy only to a comparative few people of all the people in the world. And for many, maybe even for some of us, it calls into question the just judgment of God himself.
And Paul anticipates these conscientious objections. And so he asked the question that he knows is on the minds of anyone who approaches this particular teaching. And the question is this, there is no injustice with God, is there? There is no injustice with God, is there? If you're saying that God chose the one over the other without any reason that we can decipher, there is no injustice with God, is there? It's important for us to understand that this is not a new question. This is not a novel question. Believers in the Old Testament had been asking this same question in a variety of ways for centuries. In Job chapter 21, Job asked the question, why do the wicked prosper? That seems rather unfair, God. In Jeremiah chapter 12, the writer asked God, why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all the faithless live at ease? That doesn't seem right, God. That seems unjust of you. Then there was that very famous time when God informed Abraham that he was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their wickedness. In Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham says this to God. After God has told him what he is about to do, to rain down judgment on these two cities, this is what Abraham says to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. Oh, put God in his place to kill the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from you. Listen to what he says to God. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Is there injustice with God? This is not a new or a novel question. It's the same quandary that Paul is addressing in this text today. There is no injustice with God, is there? And then he answers, far from it. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is just. For he says to Moses, verse 15, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. Yeah, we know that, Paul. You pretty much just said that. But this is the problem that we are decrying. That God doesn't show mercy to everyone equally. That's the problem we're having, Paul. Since no one is worthy of the mercy of God and since everyone is unrighteous, it seems to us that God would show the same mercy to everyone, regardless of who they are or what they have done or have not done. It seems like all of us would be saved and not just a few. There is no injustice with God, is there? Don't tell me God is going to save Calvin and destroy Joe. No, there is no injustice with God, is there? As correct as that position may sound, 
and as just and righteous as it may make one feel. This question is founded upon the wrong premise. The premise of the person who makes this kind of argument is that God chooses to save only those who are doing his will according to his scriptures. That God chooses to destroy only those who engage in sin. But as Paul points out for us in verse 16, listen, salvation does not depend on the person who wants it. Huh? Salvation does not depend on the person who, Paul says, and furthermore, salvation does not even depend on the person who runs after it. Well, really. Salvation, Paul says, depends solely upon God who has mercy. And therefore, the person who sees herself as standing in the gap for the worldly sinner and declaring they must be saved along with everybody else, that person finds himself at odds with God. Why? Because that person seeks to strip God of his right to judge and to do as he wills with what belongs to him. As David declares to us in Psalm chapter 3 verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Not to you, not to me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And not only does salvation belong to the Lord, Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 4 declares that every soul, every soul belongs to God. Hmm. So the empathetic, conscientious objector has no grounds upon which he may justly accuse God of being unjust. In fact, the person who would rail against God's right to do as he wills with what belongs to himself, that person is the most unjust of all people. Because he, in his misplaced sympathy toward humanity, has usurped unlawful authority over another person's possession. He has no right, he has no standing to speak this way of God and his justice. He has no standing. He has made himself the arbiter over God's sovereign affairs. Hmm. There is no injustice with God. And the person who behaves as though there is injustice in God is herself unjust because she has denied God's right to do as he wills. This is the humanistic believer who has decided that humanity has the right to do whatever it wills without regard for God's law and still receive eternal life. But the same person seeks to tie the hands of God so that God is less free than humans. Humanity can do as it wants, act as it wants, believe as it wants, and still inherit eternal life. Only God cannot do as he wants. Oh. There is no injustice with God 
Regardless of what God does and regardless of what God does not do, regardless of who God saves or regardless of who God chooses to not save, there is no injustice with God because God has the right to do whatever he wills with what belongs to him. And everything belongs to him. Everything and everyone belongs to God. God saves whom he wills. And as Paul teaches us through this next example, God destroys whom he wills. This is a very interesting, intriguing text. Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, this is what God says to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. For this very reason, Pharaoh, I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. In other words, he's saying, Pharaoh, this is the reason I raised you up, so that I could knock you down and demonstrate my power. That's what he just said. What? That's what he said. God is not shy about it. This is why I raised you up. Paul is referencing Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. That's a lot to swallow. Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. But before Pharaoh can say yes, I'm going to harden his heart so that he says no. All Paul says, so that God could demonstrate his power. That's a lot to swallow. That's a lot to accept. And this takes the whole conversation up another level, doesn't it? It's one thing for God to decide that for whatever reason he loves Jacob and he doesn't like Esau. That's just a matter of preference. And even if I cannot quite wrap my mind around how God came to choose the one over the other, at least I can relate. I've met people in my life that I just meet them and I like them as soon as I meet them. You've done it too. People just appeal to you. You, you like this person for no particular reason. And other people you meet, nobody has to be honest about it but me. Other people you meet, you meet them and you don't like them off the bat. You just don't care for them. You don't know why, you just don't prefer them. You've met people like that. You don't have to confess now. I'll do all the confessing. Some people you just don't prefer. So I can relate to that. God says, I love Jacob, I don't like Esau. I can kind of relate to that on some level. But this example of Pharaoh, this, this really stretches my conceptions and it should stretch your conceptions about God. Because Paul is showing us that not only does God like and dislike whomever he wills, but God also causes people to be unlikable to himself so that he can demonstrate his power and make his name great by judging them. Whoa. When you stop and just think about that, this, this notion, this idea obliterates everything we have come to understand God to be 
and God to be about. It makes me flinch inside. It makes most people flinch inside. You mean to tell me that God raised Pharaoh up, caused him to say no, so that he could destroy Pharaoh and demonstrate his power? Yes, that's exactly what he said. It makes you flinch in your conscience. But more than anything, it makes me realize that even after all these years of my walking with God, I really have no idea what it means to be God. That's what it makes me realize. After over 30 years of walking with God, this idea, this concept makes me realize I have no idea what it is and what it means to be God. But at the very least, as it pertains to God's relationship with humanity, I, along with Paul, can simply assume that, verse 18, God has mercy on whom he desires. And God hardens whom he desires. And to that, all we can say, and humbly say, is amen. To that we must humbly accept our place under God's Son and hope for his mercy and serve at his pleasure. This is what it means to be God. In the 21st century, God has become our peer and our friend. God has become our confidant. But many times nowadays, too many Christians are too familiar with God to the point where there is no fear. There is no respect. God, whatever you decide to do, I, I maintain the right to judge whatever you decide. I have the right, God, to call you to the carpet. Paul is saying, oh no, no, that's not how this works. You don't understand apparently what it means to be God. None of us do, really. It is greater, it is bigger than anything we can imagine. All we can do to this truth that the Bible is so clearly showing us is to hope for the mercy of God, to serve at the pleasure of God. But not everyone is so easily brought into submission to the divine fiat of Almighty God. No, there are some who still have questions about this. There are some even who are offended by the very idea that God would be such a God toward his own creation. And rather than accepting and respecting this raw power and privilege of God, this power that only God can exercise over his creatures, their frustrations are exacerbated. And in a moment of intellectual and conscientious rage, they ask the question in verse 19. Wait a minute. If that's the way it is, why does God still find fault? For who has resisted his will? Wait a minute. 
Why would God find fault with Pharaoh when Pharaoh was only doing what God caused him to do? Who, who, why does he find fault then? Who has resisted his will? Why has God found fault with Esau when he is the one who decided that he didn't even like Esau? Esau hasn't done anything to deserve that. Why does God find fault with Pharaoh if he is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart, the one who caused him to not obey his command? Why does he yet find fault? Paul loves to do this to us. Paul loves to attribute questions to his readers, then to answer or to expound upon the very question that he raised. Paul, when you read the book of Acts, you see that Paul liked to debate. Paul liked these kinds of questions. Paul never backed down from a question. Paul was always seeking to bring light and understanding into the hearts and the minds of God's people. Paul is a master teacher and a master builder and a great teacher. And like any great teacher, Paul knows what questions need to be answered in order for a believer to grow in Jesus Christ. Paul knows the questions that need to be answered. Paul has the perfect discipleship paradigm. Paul knows that questions pertaining to the person and work of Jesus Christ are important and they need to be answered. Questions pertaining to the life of Christ. Questions pertaining to how to become an overcomer through Christ. How to become a faithful servant of Christ and so on and so on. These are the questions Paul understands need to be answered. Paul also knows what questions deserve to be answered. Based on the spiritual maturity of the person asking the question. Just because a person has questions doesn't mean they deserve the answer. Jesus said to his own disciples, there are many things I have to say to you, but right now you're not able to bear them. Just because you have a question doesn't mean you deserve the answer. And I can tell you today after serving the body of Christ for over 30 years now, a lot of questions believers ask are way beyond their level of spiritual maturity. They have no business asking certain questions. Delving into questions about predestination when they have not yet mastered the ability to be content in whatever state they find themselves. Questions about election when they still can't forgive past wrongs. Questions that are way beyond their spiritual maturity. And what I have found after years of wondering why we engross ourselves in matters way beyond our spiritual expertise is that many believers posit these nearly unanswerable questions as a means of self-distraction. Many believers posit these difficult and complicated questions as a means of distraction as a way to postpone the next phase of their own spiritual journey. As a justification of their unwillingness to move forward in the things of God until they have these particular questions resolved. I was teaching Sunday school many, many years ago. 
and we were talking on the subject of fasting. It was a discipleship kind of Sunday school. And we were talking about fasting. I had been talking about fasting for three weeks. One of the ladies in the class had a question for me. She raised her hand. I have a question for you, uh, Calvin, but I don't want to ask it right here in public. I have a very serious question. Can I email you tonight? I said, yeah, email me. I'm excited to hear your question. I was excited to hear her question because her question was going to tell me just where she was in her spiritual journey. You can tell where people are in their spiritual journey sometimes by the questions that they ask. And so I'm excited to read her question so that I can gauge her spiritual maturity. And she emailed me and asked me her pressing question. Why are there no dinosaurs in the Bible? I've been, I've been looking in the Bible, and I was looking at the Leviathan in the book of Job. Was that a dinosaur? Why were there no dinosaurs? I'm teaching about fasting for three weeks, and her question has nothing to do with, she wants to know about dinosaurs in the Bible. Now, I was disappointed in the question. But the question is not necessarily irrelevant. There's a lot of uh, uh, good and growthful biblical topics that can stem from that question. For example, what is the purpose of the Bible? Is the Bible meant to be a science book or a way to train you how to live a godly lifestyle? Well, a lot of good topics can come out of the question. But the question was so off topic. It had nothing to do with fasting. It had nothing to do with the topic at hand. The topic, by the way, that affected her actual spiritual growth and development. It had nothing to, it was, a, it was one of those postponement questions. I'm going to put my, my growth on hold while I get curious and ask all of these curious questions. No, no, no. Many believers stop right here on predestination and election because they know that they will never receive a satisfactory answer and that gives them permission to pitch their tent where they stand and go no further. It is a postponement method. Until you can answer this question, I can't go any further. I'll be a babe when Jesus comes. Because I, I gotta have the answer to this question before I can be satisfied. Oh, really? Well, no, there are no dinosaurs in the Bible. Let's go back to fasting now, please. Her question did not deserve an answer at the time. That's my point. Her question was not relevant to where she was in her spiritual journey. Paul knows what questions need to be answered. Paul knows what questions deserve to be answered. But most importantly, Paul knows what questions cannot be answered. Paul knows what questions should not be asked. Uh-oh. Paul knows what questions should not be asked. And this is one of those questions. Why does God still find fault? For who has resisted his, hey, it's a question that you shouldn't even bother to answer. 
And Paul's going to lay it down now because this question has gone a little bit too far now. And he has to reel everybody back in. What is God's problem? If he has made me this way and I am only doing what he has made me to be, why is he so mad? Why would God judge me when it is he himself who has caused me or at least allowed me to be this way? If it is his fault that I have these faults and these flaws, why does he yet find fault with me? What is his problem? It sounds like a reasonable question. And if the interrogator was asking this question about the actions of other men, the question would be fine. If she were inquiring as to the justice and judgment of her boss or of her coworker, the question would be worth asking. But this question calls into question the judgment of God and of God's actions. And it is a question that Paul himself is not authorized to look into. That's known to explain. Paul says, wow, that's a serious question. I'm an apostle. And I never had the nerve to ask that question. I've been walking with Jesus for many years. That question, you just asked babe in Christ. Whoa, whoa, slow down. I've been to the third heaven and I don't have the nerve to start asking God what his problem is. Where did you get that from? Slow down. You're going too fast. There is something about this question that lays bare the heart of the person who is asking. And so look at what Paul does. Instead of Paul trying to make human sense of the divine mystery of predestination, instead of some deep talk, Paul turns the spotlight off of God and back upon the one who has submitted the challenge. He says this, on the contrary, I like the way the King James Version says it. In the, in the King James Version, he says, but no. What is God's problem? Who has resisted God? Paul says, no, no, no. Stop. On the contrary, you are treading upon sacred ground upon which you have no right to tread. On the contrary, you are entering into the realm of God's sovereignty that must never be challenged or questioned by his people. On the contrary, someone will say to me, but why can't we ask God questions? There's nothing wrong with trying to understand, is there? God is not bothered by my curiosity, is he? There are two reasons you don't want to ask this kind of question. There are two reasons why you do not need the answer to this question and you do not need to figure out this riddle. Reason number one, because the answer would not do you any good whatsoever. <laughs> if God explained his whole rationale for choosing how he chooses to you, it would do you no good. The answer would not help you to grow not one bit. The question is irrelevant. And the answer for you is just as irrelevant as the question. It would do you no good to know the answer to this question. God is not about satisfying people's curiosity. God gives you the answers that will allow you to grow. 
The answer to this question would not allow you to grow at all. It would just give you more information and you could say, well, I know why God chooses certain people and doesn't choose. So what does that mean? Well, what does it mean for you? What does it mean? What does it do for you to know that? Well, it makes me feel more comfortable with God. Oh, you didn't feel comfortable with God without the answer. Now we're getting into the, in, into the real problem here because this question is not a good question. <laughs> and Paul is about to expose the heart of people who ask questions like this, of people who dig too deeply into mysteries beyond where you have permission or authorization to even go. I'm talking today about what it means to be God. God will not be questioned, God will not be challenged, and God will not satisfy my every curiosity. He is sovereign, he is God. This is what it means. Some questions are off limits. I'll never forget, I was maybe six, maybe seven years old. We lived on the Garfield Boulevard, one block down from uh, Halsted Street. <clears throat> and me and my little brother, he was around four or five, we're in the bedroom, of my parents' bedroom, we're playing with dad, we're jumping on my father's chest, and he's pushing us off, throwing us in the air, all this crazy stuff. And he's making all kinds of jokes and meddling with us. I said, dad, dad, give me some money, six years old. Give me some money, dad. Dad said, I don't have any money, son. Yes, you do, you got some money, dad. He said, no, I got no money. He kept on tickling me. And I don't have any money, boy. I jumped up and went up to his pants. His pants were lying on the, on the table. I ran over to the table and said, you got some money. Let me see. And I put my hand in his pockets. <laughs> up to that point, my dad had been my buddy. Throw me up in the air and make jokes and do little faces at me. I put my hand in my father's pocket. And dad got up and grabbed my arm rather, rather, rather strong and said, son, never dishonor me by putting your hands in your father's pockets. I'll never forget that. It was all fun and games up until that moment. It was all fun. I was, you got some money, dad. Pops grabbed mama's. And I realized that day, you don't take your elders for granted. You don't take your father for granted. Know the limitations when you're dealing with authority. Don't take God for granted. Don't be too quick to call him into question. Lest he grab your arm and tell you, son, you're going too far. You're becoming disrespectful. This is what it means to be God. The second reason you don't need to know the answer to this question is because the question cannot be answered. <laughs> and if you postpone your continuance towards spiritual maturity, waiting for an answer to this question, you will remain a babe in Christ until he comes again. The question cannot be answered. God will not answer you in this. God will not explain his thinking or his decision-making processes to you. Nor does God give you permission to rewrite or to reshape him or his word, to reshape him into some false God that respects your right to know. You have no right to know. And if you think that sounds hard, listen to what Paul says next. Who, on the contrary, who 
This is my daddy saying, don't put your hand. On the contrary, stop the presses. Who are you? Never mind, never mind, Paul says, never mind. You don't need to identify yourself to me because I know who you are. You, he says right here, you are a foolish person. Read it. Paul says, you are a foolish person because upon receiving understanding through my teaching of the sovereign power and might of God, instead of you simply accepting this as true, you answered back to God. Anybody remember the first time they talked back to their parents? <laughs> Maybe yours was a positive experience. Mine was not a very positive experience. You start answering back. Whoa, oh. Mom called you to the carpet, man. She was a little bitty lady standing right up in your face. Who are you talking to, son? Who, who are you talking to? You talking to me? No, mom, I'm not talking to you, little lady. No. Paul calls you. No, no, no. This question that you're asking, let me ask you a question. Who are you? Oh, foolish person. Oh, man. He just went from being nice and kind and talking about everybody's sinners, we're all going to be have grace. And he is very stern right here. I hope you can hear the difference in the way he communicates. No, no, we were having a good time in class for a while, but that wait a minute, who are you, foolish person, who answers back to God? This question, the first part of this question, simply, simply, who are you? Let's put things back into their proper perspective. That question all by itself should be enough to cause the questioner to repent and just walk away. Who are you? And the truth of the matter is, you don't even know who you are. Since the dawn of civilization until this very moment, mankind has been asking this same question to no avail. Who am I? What is my purpose? Why am I here? If you cannot answer even the simplest questions about your own existence, who are you to object to God's nature and to God's decisions? Who are you? Before God answers your question, first you answer this question and you never will be able to. Who are you? Now sit down and ponder that for the next 70 years of your life. You don't even know who you are. But you want to explain everything about God who is so far superior to you. Who are you? Half of what you do, you can't even explain why you did it. Yet you believe you have grounds to question the sovereignty of Almighty God. You are way out of place and out of your league, Paul says. You are a foolish person. The question is not foolish, it's a great question. The problem is you have no right to be asking it. Accept the truth about God's sovereign right to choose, to make his own choices and move on. Because even you are saved by his sovereign choice. God has made you a vessel unto honor for his own sake. And Paul says, listen to me, questioner. The thing that is molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
the temporal creature that you are, will not say to your creator, why did you make me this way? Will you? And what's the point? The point is verse 21. Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one object for honorable use and another for common use? Does not God have the right to, to, to shape whatever he makes, whatever belongs to him? Does not God have the right to do with what belongs to him what he wills? Who are you? It doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right. Who are you? It doesn't seem right that I gotta preach on Sunday, my back goes out early in the morning on Saturday. Calvin, who are you, man? What are you talking about? Does not the potter have the power over the clay to make a vessel to honor and another vessel to dishonor? Can he do that if he wants to? Why are you questioning the rights of God? So you have no right to an answer to this question because you are unworthy of an answer. God does not answer to you. Furthermore, Paul continues in verse 22, and this is what I call the strong arm verse. Listen, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did that? And what if God did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, upon the saved people which he prepared beforehand for glory? What if, he, what if he did that? In short, what if God did make some people for judgment and other people for glory? What if he did? What are you going to do about it? How will you respond? How can you respond? You rule over what you have made and conquered and let God rule over what he has made. And that is justice. Hmm. And I confess with you today that I do not know exactly why God administers salvation in the way that God has chosen. I can't give you an answer to that question. I do not know how God makes his final decisions as to any person's ultimate fate. And frankly, neither does Paul. But there is something, there is something that I can appreciate about the way Paul ends this discussion with hypothetical questions instead of with a declaration of any kind. Paul doesn't end by saying that God did it this way and God has made objects for wrath and God has made objects for mercy. He doesn't, he doesn't declare that. He simply asks the question, what if he did? What if he did? You ever notice that? People so confident talking about predestination and election, Paul did not directly say that. What Paul did was ask the question, and hypothetically, okay, you want to answer this question, let me ask you, what's gonna be your response if he did that? What, what if he did? What if he did? So that what this seems to become is a discussion not about what God, not about what God has done, whether it's right or wrong, 
This becomes a question of your loyalty to God regardless of what he does. That becomes the question. It's not about predestination, actually. Your question is not coming up from within you because you're so worried and concerned about predestination versus election. Your question is coming up within you because depending upon the answer, you may choose to walk away from God. And that's what Paul understands. This is not a question about whether God is right or wrong. This is a question as to whether if God does something that you cannot appreciate whether you'll stay or not. What if he did? What will be your response? Will you walk away? Will you find fault with God? Will you refuse to be loyal to him because you do not approve of the way he manages his universe? What if he did? Will you reject God if he did it this way? Would you have a problem with God if you felt like he was being unfair? Would you try to rewrite the Bible because you find certain of God's actions to be offensive? What if God did it just the way Paul described it? We know he did it to Esau and Jacob. We know he did it to Pharaoh. But we do not know whether he continues to interact with humanity in the same manner or not. We have no idea how God makes his choices. And to the followers of Jesus Christ, it makes us no difference whatsoever. Because we are with Christ in whatever he chooses to do, in whatever manner he chooses to do it. Why? Because we revere the almighty God and we fear him and we honor him. And this is the correct and the proper posture of anyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. And that's the point. Predestination is not the point. You can't do anything about predestination or election. You can't do anything about any of that. That is far beyond your control. But Paul asked this question to shine a light into your heart to see if within you there is an arrogant attitude that would question the justice of God based upon your small moral principles. God is always right. God is always just. And whatever he does, predestination or not, election or not, whatever he does, he is just. And that's the point. Let's pray. My, my back almost stopped hurting. Talk back to me. Don't, don't sass me. Father God, we give you praise and glory today. We magnify your name for who you are. You have said in your word that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I pray that you would give us wisdom today. I pray, Lord God, that you would remind us of who you are, the Almighty One. I pray that you would remind us of our place under your Son. I pray, Lord God, that you would remove the haunting curiosities that we might have 
all of the questions that are so far beyond our own spiritual maturity. It will cause us to refocus on the things that pertain to living this godly life and to take our eyes off of trying to judge your precepts, to judge your character. You are God, and you are God all by yourself. Before the sun, before the moon, before the stars, before the seas, you are God alone. Ever remind us of what this means, of what it means to be free, to be sovereign, to have no counselor and to have no judge. Ever remind us of what it means to be God. Help us to remain in your presence in a humble posture, accepting whatever comes from your hand, pleading and interceding for those who have not come to Christ. If by your grace you might save some, forgive us for judging you, forgive us for judging your character, forgive us for trying to justify your doings. Help us to find our place again in Christ, in his name we pray.